0: Hello, and welcome to the Strategica Podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of strategica, Can ISIS Create a Viable Caliphate? And I am joined now by the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Edward Litwak, senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and of course, a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Edward, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's start with the whole concept of a a caliphate itself uh, in this piece. To, To American ears, that phrase may sound kind of archaic. I mean to the extent that prior to ISIS it had connotations for us, it sounded almost reactionary to the point of being anachronistic. In the Islamic world, when they hear caliphate, how do they process it? What does it mean to the audience that ISIS is speaking to most directly?
1: well it 's definitely aspirational it 's something that would improve uh, lives and the world and so on because the word caliphate is an english uh, an English rendition of Khalifa of the which means the uh, interchange means the replacement Muhammad creates the religion is himself a conqueror, sword in hand, kills lots of people, loots a lot the claims, the Quran, and when he dies, uh, you have to have succession. And the succession was not hereditary. And there is a dynastic bias uh, against, uh, there is a bias against the the dynastic succession. And instead, there are these successors who are his companions, the ones who rode with him. They are the successors. And the word caliphate therefore, just means the succession. It implies The people who loyally picked up when Muhammad left off, they were the first Muslims, and they were, above all, the Muslims who conquered enormously uh, because of the fact that Muhammad shows up when Byzantium and the Persian Empire, the two superpowers of the day, have exhausted each other up, 20 years of war exhausted, therefore they can be knocked off with a feather. Muhammad is the feather or rather, his successors are, because it was that immediately after the death of Muhammad, his successors uh, raid to loot, as usual, and instead of just coming back with loot, they knocked down these empires, which had hollowed each other out in 20 years of struggles where they had raided each other's capitals and all things. So what it means to the Muslim ear is the, the companions of the Prophet who rode with him, and it means... Gigantic successful conquest, and it means the proof of the truth of Islam because Islam is validated by these conquests. Islam is a religion of the sword of conquest, and these great conquests prove that it is the correct religion. So the caliphate is a wonderful sound.
0: At various times since ISIS has started sort of garnering international attention, both President Obama and Prime Minister Cameron in Great Britain have gone out of their way to say that ISIS doesn't represent real Islam. In your judgment, is that something that is incumbent upon Western leaders to try to differentiate between the various strains of the faith or does that sort of only muddy the waters about the real underlying threat?
1: Well, it's an historical falsehood. National leaders should not be lying to the populations but this is a feel-good lie saying, well, you know, plenty of Muslims don't follow the rules. Now, ISIS is following strictly the rules. The Daulat is al islamiyah as they call themselves, Daulat just means state, or the state of Islam, strictly follows Muslim law. It is There are different schools of law in Islam, but an important one, perhaps the dominant one these days, is the one that in the West is known as Wahhabism or whatever, actually is based on the writings and philosophy of Ibn Tamiya, who is a 13th century um, uh, Islamic theologian. It is the state religion of Saudi Arabia, which is our principal ally in the Arab world. It's, It's a state religion, and they're strictly following Muslim law, and it is a comical spectacle and hypocritical to have Christians like Cameron, Obama, or non-Muslims, anyway, telling this is not real Islam. This is just rhetorical, and it's false, and it's a lie, because it is very much real Islam. It's not every possible Islam. After all, there is the Ahmadiyas, who other Muslims consider to be heretics. Um, There are the Alevis of Turkey, 15 million of them, beleaguered with Erdogan who are true humanists and so on, and they would not recognize themselves at all. But it is nevertheless, A, a legitimate uh, Islamic school, and it is one that is terrifically influential. The largest School system in the Muslim world today is the Darul Ulum academies. There are probably forty thousand of them in places like Ontario, Canada, and of course all over Pakistan and the Muslim world, the Arab world, and the and the, the Islamic the Da'wa al-Islamiyah carries out to the letter the law of uh, the as interpreted by the Wahhabi school, which is. As I said, the most influential. Right here in Alexandria, Virginia, there is a Saudi school and therefore it is a Wahhabi school.
0: One one of the points that you make in your piece at Strategica is that there's a sort of – I guess you could call it an an inferiority complex, particularly when it comes to power and and military force that is driving the martial character of modern Islamism. Explain that. Well,
1: it's – look, Islam is a religion proposed by Muhammad – that was validated and proven by conquest. Uh, if you're, uh, therefore, the fact that, that uh, Muslims have been weak for the last several centuries and keep getting defeated, and they were colonialized, and then when they were decolonialized, is not exactly... I mean, in Algeria, they fought for their freedom. They certainly did in Algeria. They mostly did not. It was a question of withdrawal by the colonial powers. The fact that they keep getting defeated, that the Americans defeat Muslims, the French defeat Muslims, and, of course, the Israelis defeat Muslims, creates a huge problem, because in the Quran, Jews are singled out as cowards. Jews are cowards. Jews are weak cowards. They can't fight. We, Muslims, on the other hand, are winning, and, in fact, uh, Islam is the religion of victory common uh, names that you know, like Nasser, that means actually short for the servant, Abdel Nasser, servant of the giver of victory. Abdel Kahir, servant of the giver of conquest. Abdel Fat, servant of the giver of Islamic conquest. And so it goes. It is a religion which presumes military victory, presumes superior force. Now, if a Christian is weak, that is, means nothing because it's supposed to turn the other cheek. So what? If a Jew is weak, that means nothing because it's, there's no, uh, nothing in Judaism that promises victory to anybody, uh, as there is not in Christianity or Buddhism. But in Islam, there is. And therefore, defeat, when the Muslim army is defeated, it creates a moral problem. And also it creates doubts doubts. One aspect of this incessant shouting of allah u akbar is that evidently a lot of people are doubting if Allah is that Akbar. Akbar means great. In other words, they're doubting, of course, not God, because the Allah is the word for God. Um, Arabic-speaking Jews and Arabic-speaking Christians use Allah to mean God because it means God. But the question is that the allah akbar shouting, the incessant shouting, is the affirmation of people who have doubts. And doubts generate terrible internal anxiety and this anxiety vents itself in terrible violence.
0: Your contention in the piece at Strategica, calling on the historical example, is that you can look back to the earliest days of the the original caliphate, the first few successors of Muhammad that is so widely revered in the Islamic world and find there implications for the kind, the same kinds of problems that any modern incarnation of a caliphate might have. What's the parallel? Well, this is
1: not, however, now we're entering a phenomenon which is not peculiar to Islam. And that is when you have periods of a, a great religious, enormous religious intensity. The great intensity when people really think religion then everybody starts coming up with their own definition of the faith and they all believe that only their version of the faith will take you to heaven every other version will take you to hell and therefore it's incumbent upon you to use every means including violence to make sure that humanity finds its way to heaven and not hell that is how during the the uh, after martin luther and Son and the christian awakening which is what the reformation was there were the sea of christianity splits into a delta of many different streams which readily burn each other at the stake because what they're all trying to do is to save humanity now in islam the same thing happened the right away there was a contention already the big contention was the son-in-law of muhammad uh... when there was a dynastic element there that said, no, the Muhammad should not be succeeded by his companion, no matter who. He should be succeeded by his son in law. That was Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali. And that is how the Shia, the whole Shia split starts. It starts right there between people who believe that the successor Muhammad should be the valiant companion and the people who believe that it should be his son in law because he had no sons, he only had a daughter and son in law. This is the al albait which is the the Holy House, the Holy House of Muhammad, or the special the followers and the Shia to this day, the people who rule Iran are followers of Ali, and in fact Shia just means party of Shia the party of ali okay so that was one split, another split was was even before then with the Kajites who were who believed that uh, Islam should be much more uncompromising. They, in fact, were anticipate, they anticipated the current Wahhabi interpretation of Islam, according to which, uh, for example, it's forbidden to be a friend with a Christian. Right here in Alexandria, Virginia, the Saudi Academy, they taught uh, their version of Islam. One of the things is it's forbidden to be friends with a Christian or a Jew. And, of course, uh, one of the other things uh, is the pagans who refuse to convert must be killed. Hence, the Dalat of Islamiyah killing the Yazidis, who are not monotheists, who are not Christians or Muslim or Jews, was perfectly legal. And so, and all of these things are inherent in great religious intensity when you have salvationist religion. Now, the Jews are different because the Jews believe that you go to heaven or hell according to your behavior on earth, regardless of whether you even knew the Judaism existed. So Polynesian fisherman, who's nice, uh, goes to heaven and some learned rabbi who is not nice doesn't go to heaven. So they don't have to burn each other, but the Christians have to burn each other, the Muslims have to burn each other, because it is their duty to save humanity from the eternal flames of hell and therefore they have to burn people who would divert them from the true faith
0: as as defined by themselves. So let me close with a, a couple of present day policy questions. The, the first one I'll put to you, one of the notions that has gained a lot of traction in the press in recent weeks is that it's imperative, especially when it comes to ground forces, that forces in the region step up to take the lead, that other Muslim forces be a part of this so that it defangs the notion that this is a fight between the West and Islam. Are you sympathetic to that notion? I'm not
1: sympathetic to it. First of all, I don't accept that we should be fighting the Daulat al-Islamiyah. The principal enemy of the Daulat al-Islamiyah are the Shia. The Shia are represented by Iran. Iran is a country that is every day uh, pursuing anti-American aims as far as places like Caracas, Venezuela, and I don't see why we, for the third third time in a row, we should be fighting the enemies of Iran. We removed Saddam Hussein, his number one enemy, we removed the Taliban enemy, and now we're going to remove this one. I don't accept that principle. The second thing I don't accept is that you legitimize a non-Muslim action by bringing the Muslims. Let me tell you, when you bring in the Muslims to fight against other Muslims, you are not legitimizing yourself. You are delegitimizing them. The Saudis, the Saudis, uh, uh, Osama Bin Laden got going because the Saudis had Christian troops fighting the Iraqi Saddam, who was a Muslim in some sense. And now, and delegitimized the Saudi monarchy, turned against it, and we ended up being attacked because we protected Saudi monarchy. The Saudis played this game again. Again, they will not legitimize us, but we will delegitimize them. Because there's the first rule is Muslim does not fight Muslim alongside Christian. Muslim does not fight Muslim for the Christians. You do that, you get delegitimized. So this is a game that failed the first time, and now we're doing this exactly the same thing.
0: And finally, let's bring this all around, a question that I put to many of our guests, one I've put to you before. You're called into a meeting of the National Security Council, and you give them the same historical praises that you've just given our audience today. What do their operational takeaways need to be? What, What are the aspects of the historical analysis that are most important to get the policy response right in the present day?
1: The historical analysis is that whenever you enter the lands of Islam, you unite the Muslims against you. If you stay out of them, the Muslims reach their own equilibrium, or they don't maybe, and fight each other. But either way, you do not aggravate the crisis. So the first thing is... To, I would appeal to President Obama and his team to go back to Obama's original reluctance. The proper stance to the Middle East is to be reluctant, not to be an interventionist, but to be a non-interventionist and to allow the local equilibrium to unfold itself and if you're going to intervene, then you would need a very, very large army. Let's say a million men. The U.S. Army is 700,000. We would have to double it or triple it, and then you can dominate the area. But why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do it? The whole area is not worth the bones of one American soldier. We, the, the main action in world politics is in the Pacific. The main activity is containment of China, not to deal with these rats
0: and mice running around the deserts of Mesopotamia. All right. Our guest has been Edward Ludwak, senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of the group by visiting strategica at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Ed, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.